Hello and welcome to Versify, the Poetry and English Literature podcast. Um, thank you very much for listening to us uh, and rejoining us if you are rejoining us. Um, and if you are new to our podcast, um, I normally briefly say what we're about but do you know what I've actually had a bit of a crisis of I wouldn't say confidence but I mean what what is this podcast I was asking myself five minutes ago so I'm going to throw it over to my two trusted colleagues Robin and David to see if they can offer you some guidance on that simple question what actually is this podcast well I would say that it is um uh three uh uh genial enthusiasts um uh, knowing uh, very little about any given subject, but uh, very willing to tackle it head on by uh, sort of reckoning with the poems in real time uh, and just chatting, chatting them over, trying to uh, determine what they mean, uh, trying to find out a little tiny uh, slither of the historical context, some very sketched in biographical details of the poet. We certainly don't attempt to provide any sort of comprehensive overview or analysis of each poem or uh, certainly the poets themselves, but just a, uh, a an hour or so of entertainment and um, banter about these about about three poems uh, per. Oh my God! <laughs> no, no, thanks for. Am I actually, what, Well, no, I mean, what I was going to say was you, you have slightly reassured me in 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 what we're doing. Although towards the end of that, I was thinking if this is a pitch. <laughs> yeah, it's not the twenty-five yeah. words or less elevator pitch, is it? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> but um, no, no, I think that's that's it, isn't it? David, do you want to add any anything to that? I probably probably shouldn't really. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, only to say that yeah, this is the opposite of if you're if you're scared of uh, the idea of a bunch of deeply learned people competing with each other to show how much they know about something. Um, this is not that. No. So do not be afraid. No. Okay. This is not a university lecture. It's quite the opposite. Yeah. It's. it's yeah. Well, I think one of our one of our, our listeners did e- email in and said it's like being down the pub with three. Uh, listening to three people talk, you know, about poetry, which, uh, you know, I don't think that's such a bad review. Um, <laughs> no. I mean, it's certainly perhaps it's... he was perhaps the pub was the determinant factor in the lucidity <laughs> of the insights. So yeah, I, choose, um, I choose to take that as a compliment, anyway. I mean, I suppose that's it, isn't it? It's that for some reason, and whatever that reason is, we we want to look at these poems and these poets from from the past um, and uh, and find out about them. Uh, and I guess that that is what this podcast is about I, mean, I, suppose, uh, I suppose it's how we curate the poets as well that's the other thing isn't it and i feel like we're doing we're doing that in a fairly um fairly haphazard fashion at some point we should i mean it'd be really nice to take some requests from 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 readers that will throw us down some unusual um uh, alleys blind alleys that we didn't we don't know anything about not that we know anything about anything but you know if we get a suggestion or a recommendation uh, or even a request, you know, to please cover this or that poet, then that would be interesting as well. Because at the moment we're just sort of, we've hit mostly the big names, haven't we? I mean, it's kind of obvious that we'd end up <laughs> reading Sylvia Maybe Blatt. some others. But... Um, uh, so maybe it's, a, you know, it's, it's, it's to push us into slightly more unusual corners of the, um, you know, the poetry orbit. I was thinking, I, just, I was just listening to um, Desert Island Discs and Wendy Cope was on. I thought, yeah, that's a good person to do. She's, you know, current modern poet, isn't she? You know, um, we've only done two women as well so far yeah no i think we do need to think um, very seriously about not, that not, to- not that it's just playing lip service to but i mean it's just it's just like we shouldn't be too stuck in our rut of you no. know 20th century and before male poets you know so that's you know that, those are things we should probably keep tabs on but again it'd be good to hear from the it'd be good to hear from the listeners and see what's 
but you know what 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 they what they want to hear because I'm happy to tackle anything you know I mean I know just as much about Wendy Cope as I do about today's subject which is WH Auden you know it's just which is to say nothing um, <laughs> well, so that's, that's that, that you've, you've certainly covered the, the key uh, one of the keynotes key 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 uh, ideas which is that we we certainly don't know very much about these poets today's poet as you've rightly said Rob is um, W.H. Auden, and you were just talking about um, recommendations from uh, listeners to this pod, and uh, I'm pleased to say that th- th- this was a recommendation that we received from um, one of our, our, our correspondents oh, that's on right. yeah, email. It was Pete. Hi again, Pete. Who, who, who suggested that we had a look at W.H. Auden. So, in, in a way, we are definitely um, fulfilling that aspect of our ambition, which is to be uh, responsive to our listeners. And we're, we're really excited to, to look at WH Jordan today. Um, on the other hand, um, it certainly is someone from the sort of... Um, the canon. You know, the canon, exactly, exactly. So, um, well, I'm, I'm excited to see what we're, what we're going to hear. Guys, before we do that... Our last podcast was on Sylvia Plath. Actually, Dan, before we even do that, let me just say, since we are impl- impl- imploring the, the the listeners to write in, let me just quickly tell them how they can do that, uh, which is uh, either via our Twitter handle, which is at Poetry Podcasts, uh, or uh, Poetry Podcasts at gmail.com, which is the email address. Quickly again, that's on Twitter at Poetry Podcasts, that's all one word, poetry, and then P-O-D-C-A-T-S, podcasts, uh, or poetrypodcasts at gmail.com. Sorry, Dan, carry on. No, 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 thank you for that. And if you do, uh, obviously, as Rob uh, said there, uh, have any ideas you want to communicate with us, please do. We'd be delighted to hear. Last podcast was on Sylvia Plath. And if you are listening to this podcast for the first time... um, what we do try to do at the beginning of our next show uh, is is just pick up on any uh, mistakes or errors or um, post thoughts that we've had about it. Um, I, I, I just I was thinking earlier on about that that pod. I, I I can't think of a mistake offhand. Although I think David, did you think that we, you you had something that you sort of picked up on afterwards that was perhaps we didn't deal with enough. I don't know about that. The only thing I remember, it's been a while now since I listened back to it, but I remember uh, thinking, I remember referring to uh, some of Plath's contemporary sort of feminists like Betty Friedan in the early 1960s as, uh, I think I described them as first wave feminists, which was clearly not not right. They were they're second wave feminists. <clears throat> so that, that, that was just one little thing that bugged me when I when I listened to that back to that. Apart from that, I don't recall anything else really... Really big, no. Okay. Uh, Rob, do you have anything else? Well, this is, yeah, it's been slightly nagging me because I feel like we talked, because only for our ignorance, I feel like we talked um, on the Ted Hughes episode a bit about, oh, he was, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, slightly imperfect and their relationship was, you know, has been controversial and, you know, and so on. And then again, we did it on the Plath episode where we just kind of like skimmed over this idea that, um, you know, his his relationship, his behaviour perhaps wasn't ideal, you know, and the rest of it. And obviously, you know, Hugh's a huge poet. We've really liked his poems on this on his episode of podcast, you know, but I thought I'd be worth just reading very, very, you know, in a very shallow way into that. And, um, you know, it's probably worth mentioning quite how gruesome that, situation does appear to have been you know um it says here plath wrote that 
Hughes beat her two days before she had a miscarriage, for example, um, in February 1961. And then obviously he was off having an affair with this uh, Asia Wevel woman. And then Sylvia Plath had a car accident, which she described as a suicide attempt. And then... Uh, continued having an affair with this other woman and basically neglected her and ignored her and and, and so on. So I was just going to say, the, 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 not, I want to deeply to get deeply into the um, the Plath-Hughes conundrum. However, I do feel like it's probably worth mentioning that uh, the circumstances of their marriage were perhaps, we just kind of glossed over it in the, in the most kind of like blank-eyed way, going, oh, I don't really know anything about it. But it does sound like he was pretty fucking gruesome to her. Um, you know, okay, was... so we, 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 we understated, we may well have understated without going into anything that we're not experts on. Exactly, we, that's exactly, we, the, we pin, that's exactly the head of the pin I'm standing on, which is that I still don't know anything, but I feel like when we were not knowing anything before, we were also just kind of just brushing it past in the most casual possible way. Uh, and I dare say there's probably quite a lot more to it there. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you for that, Rob, because I think it, I think I agree with you. I think it was something that played on my mind a little bit afterwards about uh, the fact that plunging into that and our ignorance of perhaps the, the some unpleasant natures uh, nature of the controversy. Um, we enjoyed uh, our Sylvia Plath podcast because I personally really enjoyed the poetry, and I have been reading some Sylvia Plath poetry since, and I I, I, I feel like it was a bit of a discovery. So I, I'm very glad that we. We tackled that one for whichever reason we did. Guys, we our next uh, section on this podcast is the quiz section. Now, I hope you haven't forgotten that this section exists. <laughs> Certainly uh, not. <laughs> <laughs> Thought about a little uh, else since last time. Yeah. Well, in that case, David, do you, do you want to bowl in with your question or should we save that for the headline act? <laughs> uh, I don't mind. Uh, it's up to you. I can go if you like. Shall I go? Shall I do it? Uh, well, I, I don't know. If there's something in the tone of your voice that suggests you've got an amazing question. Right, let me let me go in with, with my with my slow ball, right. yeah. <laughs> lightweights question, which you'll both know the answer to. Is, is the answer uh, four weddings and a funeral? Yeah, it is. Yeah, no, no, it's not. No, it's, it's really not. No. Uh, in 1936, uh, Auden provided uh, a poem for an extremely important early documentary for the British documentary movement that was really um, an incredible coming together of of minds in the early documentary movement. Basil Wright uh, directed it. It was narrated by John Grierson, who was really the father of um, uh, British documentary, who in fact coined the word documentary. Uh, Score was by the composer Benjamin Britten. And uh, Auden wrote uh, what he described with a, 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 as a verse commentary, but it was really a kind of extended poem uh, for the documentary that was produced by the London Midland and Scottish Railway that ran from London to Glasgow. What is the name of that 1936 film? Well, I'm guessing we both know the answer, but you said it was narrated by John Grierson. Does that mean that the reading on the film is not Auden himself, but is, is someone else? It is correct, yeah. Mm. Oh, I did that. I did not know. Well, actually, um, it says here it was narrated by Stuart Legg and John Grierson. So, because uh, it's not, it's not exclusively, um, I don't think, exclusively uh, written by Auden. I'm not completely sure. Actually, it does say here written by W. H. Auden. So, yeah, it is. But you obviously know the answer anyway. Yeah, it's Nightmail, which is um, a very uh, effective and compelling piece of verse. I, I take it that you, from your question that you you know it 
Yeah. You've no, seen the film? I've seen the film, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, I, yeah. Th- I think it's a film you don't get through um, any sort of um, media degree without having watched Nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? Because oh, it's the invention of the documentary. Yeah. Well, not the invention. Not the invention it's, of the documentary it's, by it's, any stretch of the imagination. In, 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 but Briti- in British terms, it's a landmark. Yeah, and it's also a it's, it's, it's 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 poetic as well as being documentary. It's okay. It's not. It's it's something slightly outside of what you consider documentary, isn't it? It's it's a kind of lyrical, poetic documentary, not just a series of facts with a you know dryly uh, dryly presented. So it's a kind of. Well, uh, I, I wonder if if that's not a genre that could that more could be done with because thinking about it, there aren't. I mean, again, I don't know, but I mean, I watch a few documentaries on the TV. They don't tend to be written by major poets in verse. But, I mean, doesn't that just kind of indicate the way that the the, the sort of position of the, the status of the poets really kind of fallen over over the decades, though? I mean, we were talking about that with really, weren't we, ages ago now, about how he was a kind of, you know, this this sort of patrician old old guy was was a, a celebrity. Was, you know, was a guest on chat shows. I mean... Yeah. Although I did, I did read the, I did the, the other show. day that the net worth of Simon Armitage is somewhere between one and five million quid. So he's, right? done, he's done all right out of it. <laughs> then again, he's a poet laureate and he's brilliant. So I guess that's yeah. Fair. I suppose he's the you know, by far the most famous mm. famous one around. But yeah, on the whole, you don't you won't get someone uh, like him being asked to do stuff like that no. anymore. I think so. I think it'd be great documentary. I don't know what it would be about, you know, but. Simon or anyway um <laughs> good question Rob I'll go next um okay this question has two parts to it um the first part is that um when um, is the answer it, four weddings and a funeral <laughs> <laughs> oh. yes no no it's not um in I don't know 1937 let's say um Auden goes to Iceland on this celebrated trip. And of course, all of this is connected to the point that David made, I think, about the status of poets, that, you know, it was exciting, big deal that famous poet W.H. Auden was going to Iceland with another poet of whom I know absolutely nothing called Louis McNeese, I think. Anyway, while he was there, his, his, his work that he produced was a letter in verse to another poet. Do you know the addressee of this piece of work that's a good one uh, what was the year again sorry i think it was 37 um, um I, I, do you know what i've got this amazing edition which i'm going to go on about in a minute it was oh sorry uh, july october 36 because it says at the end the dates of the poems was it was it was it a living poet then not an, no. so it wasn't like an oh, it's, it's like an elegy to a to a, uh, I, to well, a hero. it might help you to know that this poem, this letter is, uh, it's long, it's long. It's um, page eighty-one to page one hundred and thirteen. So you can do the maths mm. on that. Because I've noticed that he, did, he he wrote a number of elegies to different poets. This isn't an elegy, mind. but that's not it. That's, this isn't one of that. This isn't like that at all. Okay, so it's not Yeats. Then. No, there is a, there Which is a would have been uh, my guess. Okay, um, okay. So you guys don't know. So I've actually, I've actually boned up on this more than you have, then, uh, <laughs> because the answer is, um, well, silly. What shall I start reading the first thing? And you can tell me when you've got the answer. <laughs> it begins. Excuse, my lord, the liberty I take in thus addressing you. 
I know that you will pay the price of authorship and make the allowances an author has to do. A poet's fan mail will be nothing new. And then a lord, good lord, you must be peppered like Gary Cooper, Cochlean or Dick Shepherd. So Byron. With, yes, yeah. you've got it. You've got it, boys. <laughs> a big, po- big poetic lord. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I almost don't need to do my second part, but... Um, no, I won't. All right, then, fine. That's my, my question. And I have to say, uh, that is um, that is, a, that is well worth reading. Very, very good. Um, David, your okay. question. Okay. Um, my question comes from... Um, it's a really good... So I need to use this more often, actually, for quiz questions for the, for the podcast. It's a book called Britain by the Book, uh, A Curious Tour of Our Literary Landscape by Oliver Turl, made up a very, very short... Um, bite-sized chapters all about uh, which cover the whole of Britain um, and say interesting things about something bookish that's happened in in those in those towns and villages and and so forth anyway uh, according to this book which major author um, had to move house because W.H. Auden gave away his address uh, during a talk in New York in the 1960s. So he, it could be, it could be an American author, couldn't it? Uh, it's, um, I'll tell you what, I'll, get, I'll help you. As I've realised it's, it's, it's a tough one. Um, it's an English author who lived in Oxford. Tolkien. <sighs> yeah. Oh, damn, you <laughs> legend. <laughs> I yeah. did, well, it's, it's legendary because of my, my, the superficiality of any such knowledge I have. When you said an, an author living in Oxford in the 60s, anything, yeah. anything I, I'm sure there were hundreds. But um, Well, I was going to say as well, what author's going to be like hounded out of his house? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like yeah. in the 60s, yeah. exactly. you know what I mean? You'd have thought, you know, yeah, you wouldn't yeah. want to give away, I don't know, Bob Dylan's yeah. address or something. Yeah, but quite. I mean, what authors in, ca- encourage that kind of enthusiasm or prompt it? Uh, I guess, yeah, Tolkien would be one, wouldn't he? Yeah. yeah. But he, apparently he, he mentioned uh, where he said he lived in a hideous house. Um, oh, really? <laughs> in this talk he gave in uh, in New York in, in 1966 and uh, it caused a number of American fans to turn up at uh, Tolkien's house over the course of the next few months at least I don't think it, he moved just because of that to be honest I think it's probably an exaggeration but um, they, they, they upped sticks and moved to, to Dorset it's hard to avoid the um, slight sense that Auden may have been being deliberately <laughs> mischievous in doing <laughs> such a thing isn't it yeah I think so I mean apparently he was a fan he was a, a fan and, and champion of Tolkien's work uh, I don't, oh, so I perhaps don't he think he meant didn't to, realize. to no I don't, okay. I don't think he was being deliberately uh, vindictive <laughs> yeah no it would be a bit beyond the pale to do that wouldn't mm. it so I guess call it, it's it's called, they call it doxing people these days don't they <laughs> so, yeah. yeah I think yeah. <laughs> posting their, their details on the internet and getting I don't know getting their SWAT team sent to their houses and stuff. <laughs> but he didn't do that, you know what I mean? So it was no, reasonable. No, he didn't do that. Um, this was in 1964. Now, I know that Auden was born... Thank you, that was a good question. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed getting it right. <laughs> um, I know that he, he was born in 1907. Do we know when he died? 73, Yeah. Yeah. 73? Yeah. So he and I, he, well. he and I are contemporaries, yeah. or were contemporaries, for a year. Yeah, yeah, but uh, I don't think you two were. So I think that gives me a special connection. <laughs> <laughs> what year were you born, Dave? 
Uh, 77. I missed him by, by a whole four years there. Oh, you're, you're a mere babe. I'm 74, yeah. Mm. You look older than me. <laughs> so uh, the, um, the section of the, the pod before we go into having a look at the first of the poems is where we just reflect briefly on, you know, where this poet is in our own sort of uh, knowledge or lives or, you know. And, and I think, again, well, I'll go first. I mean, David said about the the, the the loss of the sort of status of um, the poet in English society. And I think that's true in British society, because when you look back to someone like Auden, and I have been um, a little bit uh, today and yesterday to some extent, you, you, you get the sense this thing sort of, you know, they, the Auden and other people associated with him were quite a sort of a phenomenon in the culture. Um, and he died in 1973, as I think we've established. Um, and so I basically have not encountered Auden at all in my life, other than um, Nightmail, which uh, uh, a famous documentary, and of course, um, Stop All the Clocks in 1994 I'd say um, in the film Four Weddings and a Funeral um, but he has this sort of towering reputation but I mean I, I can't I can't really recall reading or seeing on TV or in any other media that one consumes or generally in the culture encountering Auden very much at all that, that, that so you know, extremely limited exposure to Auden would be my starting point I, I would imagine, Dan, that you probably he's, he's one of those authors that you, one of those writers that you you'll recognise bits of. Though you'll realise, oh, actually, yeah, I did know that one, and I, I do recognise that one. I have heard that one before, um, possibly with the well, with the with Rob's choice um, today, which is one of the probably his most sort of um, most famous poems. Um, that that's true. I was overstating that a little bit, yeah, because I have come across that poem uh, before. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's true to say, he, I th- yeah, I think it's fair to say that his uh, his fame increased significantly through the um, the use of that poem, yeah, "Funeral Blues" or "Stop All the Clocks" on uh, in the in for weddings and a funeral, um, which I, I did read recently. That obviously that's used in a very kind of um, elegiac and and romantic way in that film, beautifully, I think. Um, but it apparently was a sort of a joke. It was written as a kind of mock, mock sort of elegy for a for a dictator. Um, I haven't looked any further into it than that. But it, it was it's not as I think most he, people. He wrote heard. a play in the early thirties, I think, called The Orators, because oh, he was a bit of a dramatist as well. I think it's from The Orators. Oh, yeah, yeah, although I stand I stand to be corrected. Yeah. But then he did. Um, he did put it into uh, his more serious, later collected poems mm. out of that context. So perhaps he had realised that it was, yeah, deserved better. Yeah. It's one of a sequence, isn't it? Of, of, <laughs> uh, in, when this in this edition I've got, it's uh, from a thing called Twelve Songs. Um, yeah, each of which is yeah clearly a kind of uh, elegy, a sort of tribute to, to some seemingly dead um, lover. Um, yeah, there's a, so there's a there's a few there's a handful of his his poems that I that I do that I do know reasonably well. Um, there's one called uh, the 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 Musée des Beaux Arts, which um, is about the Bruegel painting of Icarus, 
which is a really interesting piece of work. And there are one or two others. Like I've, I'm just quickly trying to look now which ones I sort, of, I sort of slightly know. They're Lonely Betters. That's one I've encountered um, before. Um, as I walked out one evening, I think I, I feel like I know that one as well. Miss G, that's definitely one I know. So it's quite a Larkin-esque sort of, um, actually more of a Betjeman-esque kind of quite moving um, sort of poem about a, a, a recently deceased old lady. Uh, but yeah, as as with all of these, all of the poets we've done so far, you know, I know a little, but not a lot. Yeah. Do, do, do you feel that you, I mean, Four Weddings and a Funeral aside, which was obviously a sort of a, a big spike in his share price, if you like to use that rather <laughs> cliched analogy, um, in the mid-90s. I mean, in the last 20 years, does Auden come across the radar outside of sort of personal, professional sort of reading? But do, do you ever encounter him in the culture no i don't think i ever have no uh uh, just to just to jump in in terms of what i know nothing is the answer um yeah really 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 uh almost complete um despite i mean despite knowing the name uh, you know and 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 then sort of understanding his huge role in 20th century british poetry uh i know very little of his work nearly nothing i would i would say yeah well no i would i would i would agree with that uh, we have um, three poems that we are going to look at, and um, I think, David, I think yours is first. Is that right? Yeah, uh, I think we agreed that this was the one to start with. It's the We think it's the first one chronologically. Um, it's called The Novelist. It's really it's really small. It's, a, it's, it's uh, very brief and looks kind of intriguing. In my edition, which is the collected shorter poems... 1927 to 57 yeah. um, but which doesn't we've kind of established doesn't include absolutely everything from that era the fact that it t- terminates in 57 does that mean you're actually holding an old book uh, this I, I reckon I bought this as a student yeah so the first edition of this was published in 1966 so obviously Auden was still still around um, okay. For a good, oh, so, good few okay. Years after that. so you've got a reprint of the '66 edition of the collected poems. Uh, okay. So I ring my gong. Do it. Mm. The novelist by W. H. Auden. Encased in talent like a uniform, the rank of every poet is well known. They can amaze us like a thunderstorm, or die so young, or live for years alone. They can dash forward like hussars, but he must struggle out of his boyish gift and learn how to be plain and awkward, how to be one after whom none think it worth to turn. For to achieve his lightest wish, he must become the whole of boredom, subject to vulgar complaints like love. Among the just, be just. Among the filthy, filthy too. And in his own weak person, if he can, dully put up with all the wrongs of man. Okay, I'll take a second pass on that. The novelist. Encased in talent like a uniform, the rank of every poet is well known. They can amaze us like a thunderstorm, or die so young, or live for years alone. They can dash forward like hussars, but he must struggle out of his boyish gift 
and learn how to be plain and awkward, how to be one after whom none think it worth to turn. For to achieve his lightest wish, he must become the whole of boredom, subject to vulgar complaints like love, among the just be just, among the filthy filthy too, and in his own weak person if he can, dully put up with all the wrongs of man. Well, I have a slightly different final line in this reading, this version here that I've got off the interwebs. Uh, it says, um, and in his own weak person, if he can, must suffer dully all the wrongs of man. Mm. Which I slightly, pref- I slightly prefer. Really interesting. Must yeah. suffer dully all the wrongs of man. Yeah, that's better, isn't it? Yeah, I slightly prefer that. It's better with the. It's, it's better. It scans. It's a sonnet, isn't it? It scans better as a final line of a sonnet. Sonnet. Mm. I believe it is true to say that one of the things which was confounding to would-be canonical um, editors of uh, Auden is that he um, constantly revised his own poems. Ah, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, your version, Rob, has it's it's. Um properly iambic isn't it yeah properly uh, properly iambic must suffer dully yeah must must suffer dully yeah whereas as the dully uh, the emphasis comes in the first yeah yeah the first syllable of the line which does feel a bit jarring sort of yeah pos, pos, yeah maybe on purpose I wonder which one came which one he revised it to then do we think yeah well I, I would I would gambit that he revised it to our version david i'm not saying that that's a better or superior version but just because i know that this book was published after Auden's death and it was a sort of definitive edition based on what he wanted um whereas we don't quite know the provenance of robin's no um, the internet the, the poem is 1938 possibly it first appeared as you've got it rob Whereas I suspect this is the one that he finally chose, but I mean, who knows what's better than or why indeed he made the revision? Yeah, yeah. It was only at the end of my reading that I realised the title. Um, it's the novelist, which I presume is in contradistinction to him, Auden, the poet. So mm. does that make it mean something different? Yeah, I suppose I was kind of drawn to this just just by um, the. Yeah, I'm kind of interested in writers writing about writing, and. Um, because yeah. I find it fasc- I find it fascinating that that anyone would choose to do that uh, with their life, and you know, thank goodness lots of people do. But I don't understand how you can. Um, I mean, one of the things, apart from obviously a lack of talent that <laughs> prevents me from writing, uh, is the lon- the, the the loneliness and the kind of um, self absorption that it must take, and as well as, and the discipline, obviously as well. So, if I, and I, I'm particularly interested in the way that. Because we've, I suppose we've covered, we've sort of mentioned the uh, the status of a, of the poet and how that's changed. Um, these days, obviously, if you want to make a living out of writing, you do write novels. If you're out, out, out of fiction writing, you certainly don't write poems. This feels a bit like uh, so a poet considering the 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 novelist in a in a kind of slightly sympathetic but slightly piteous sort of way. Um, do we think? Okay, well, let's break it down. Encased in talent like a uniform, the rank of every poet is well known. They can amaze us like a thunderstorm or die so young or live for years alone. I mean, I, I would say that's obviously about poets in contradistinction to novelists, right? 
Mm-hmm. So I guess the rank of every poet is like, I don't know, Tennyson is better than Shelley, or that kind of statement. Def- would be, definitely, yeah. And and, pro- and probably to be fair, given that Auden was surrounded himself by his some of the you know greatest 20th century poets who weren't just in the culture but were his personal friends as well i would have thought the sense of there being some kind of uh, hierarchy would probably be quite um acute <laughs> that's actually a great because there was the yeah. Auden group wasn't there which was like yeah. louis mcneese and and uh, whoever else stephen spender and Steven whoever spender, else you know yeah. cecil you know, day lewis yeah. yeah cecil day lewis so there are a whole bunch of them that were friends and and were you know and obviously T.S. Eliot's lurking around there somewhere as well, being weird and brilliant, you know, that no doubt they all, you know, and Yates is still writing, is he? Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I don't know, he does in 39. Yeah. 39, so he's still yeah. a l- lurking around, he's sort of, yeah. yeah. Um, so I imagine that there was very much a sense of the rank of every poet, and so that line, the rank of every poet is well known, is probably not yeah. entirely humorous. Uh, they can amaze us like a thunderstorm. Uh, oh. Sorry, but I'm going to go for Byron there. Mm-hmm. Um, or die so young. Keats. Or live for years alone. The, all the rest of them. <laughs> <laughs> or live for years alone. Well, I mean, there's loads of poets that died young, and it's yeah. it's almost a, it's you know it's kind of almost expected, isn't it, of of our poets that they produce brilliance in their twenties and then uh, fizzle out. Early. And I guess to Auden in 38, actually, this is probably a bit of, a, of an Auden theme, isn't it? That um, no one can have been insensible of the effect of the First World War and yeah. all of that stuff. So many, I guess, many of them died young. Yeah, a lot of his contemporaries, or near contemporaries, let's say. Because uh, he would have yeah. only been, was he born in 1903? So he'd only been 15 at the no, end. No, no, of- he was born in 1907. He was 11 when it finished. Yeah. So he grew up into the world in which, well, obviously the tight sort of titanic grief and, and, and loss. And by 38, he's 31, so he's fully aware of what's happened. Yeah. Um, or live for years alone. I, I can't think of a poet who's lived for years alone, famously, but... Um, well, I mean, I think it's, it's Auden referring to himself, even at this age relatively young age of his life i reckon he's uh that's he's 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 missed that that thing hasn't he he's missed that if he's if he was going to be immortal if he was going to die young he would have died young he's he's now too old to have died young and and be remembered as a shelley or a keats or a wilfred owen yeah yeah so instead he's going to be the one that lives for years alone and I think he was already sort of unhappy in love wasn't he the one the biographical thing i know about him is that he won? He he had a sort of lifelong uh, companion. He was, I mean, he was gay, famously, but he had a kind of lifelong companion who didn't want to be monogamous. Oh, that's um, right. Yeah. And they they sort of stayed as kind of you know companions, I suppose, as lovers. But but whereas Auden was, I think you know, in love. Um, the other guy, I can't remember his name or what he did or anything about him, but he you know, he clearly Chester. Won- Thank you. Yes, it was Chester, someone. Um, he wanted to, you know, see other people. Uh, so maybe this is Auden already sort of looking at, you know, thinking of himself as a kind of old man. A rather tragic figure, yeah. Yeah, which is, you know, possibly equally romantic. I think that's maybe his point, is that they're both slightly cliched romantic ideas of what a poet should be. Okay. And that that's the sort of, you know, that's what's expected of the poet. Um, but it's still quite romantic. Like, the you know, they can dash forward like hussars. 
Um, and then he shifts to this idea of what, what the reality of being a novelist is like or must be like, which seems entirely unromantic. Well, can you take us through that stanza? Because I'm actually quite interested to hear what you've got to say about it. Um, so, yeah, they can dash... Um, what is a hussar, exactly? Some kind of sol- soldier. Yeah, is that a German or Russian soldier or something? I would have thought that. No, 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 oh, it's is British, it? Oh, isn't is it? Okay. You know, in The Charge of the Light Brigade. Oh, yeah. Right. But yeah. It doesn't David, he- David Hemmings, is it? In that? You, you should know better than me, Rob. I think it, it is David Royal Hemmings. Royal Hussars. Yeah, OK, yeah. Uh, OK, yeah, yeah. So, I guess yeah. they're, um, I don't know, some regiment of the British Army at that time. But, yes, OK, so... That's the first. So, so far, he's described poets, and then, but he, and then obviously, you kind of acknowledge that that the title of the poem is the novelist. So, this must be the ref- reference, the first reference to the novelist. Must struggle out of his boyish gift and learn how to be plain and awkward, how to be one after whom none think it worth to turn. So, you kind of, he seems to be suggesting that you have to deny your brilliance if you're a naturally gifted writer and you want to write novels you need to sort of rein it in or uh, tone it down or whatever and be more I guess because he thinks of and I guess we think of the novel of the 1930s perhaps as being as sort of realist um, and sort of trying to reflect uh, actual life Mm-hmm. in a kind of mimetic way, way, in a way that perhaps poetry, and seemingly in the way that Auden thinks of it, is about kind of elevating and and uplifting and and challenging or whatever. Maybe, possibly. I'm loving that. Yeah. 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 It makes sense to me. Yeah. So 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 they can dash forward like hussars. Is poets still? He's still talking about poets. The rank of every poet. But so, the, the, as it were, there's a vaulter halfway through that fifth line. But he must struggle out of his boyish gift, and he must struggle out of his boyish gift. Is now that he is now the novelist, right? Yeah. And also, maybe um, Auden is being a bit snobbish about novels and the kind of kinds of people who read them. As well, it freaking to... sounds like it, doesn't yeah. it? In the last line of the second stanza. Absolutely. I mean, he says, how to be one after whom none think it worth to turn. Yeah. Implying that um, people follow poets, but they don't follow novelists. Is that, I mean, is that, that, that seems to be the, yeah. certainly the surface sense of it. Yeah, the novelists uh, are not idolised. Yeah, I suppose this is right. This is an absolute takedown, isn't it? For achieve his lightest wish, he must become the whole of boredom. I mean, that cannot possibly be a compliment. Subject to vulgar <laughs> complaints like love. That's the ultimate word, I think. Vulgar. This feels like a sort of a slight on Orwell and sort of down and out in Paris yeah. and London among the filthy, filthy too. And in his own weak person, if he can, must suffer dully all the wrongs of man. Yeah, so, I mean, we've got boredom and dully and weak and vulgar. V- vulgar is the big one for me, yeah. That's, yeah. that's, the, the, that's the really kind of... Um, uh, belittling, snobbish view of of novels. Yeah, and, he's and basically the, saying poets are extraordinary, and I'm afraid novelists, you're tacky, and I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I wonder if it, if he is actually saying that. Though I wonder if there is some humour or irony here. I think it's a funny poem. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's a it's a wry sonnet, isn't it? It's not some. Uh, it sounds like it could have been written on the inside of a birthday card. You know. <laughs> yeah. 
you can sort of imagine that yeah, this maybe maybe been written for um, a, a novelist friend of his that he just wanted to have a bit of a a bit of a dig at. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm I'm, I'm glad you boys are taking such a generous um, <laughs> interpretation of it because I was just I was I was suddenly seething there and thinking, oh my god, is this the sort of uh, arch snobbishness and sort of vindictiveness that you know people hate about poetry um, <laughs> yeah, well it might know. it might be that but but no but i think you know I, I love what you're saying that this is the sort of thing that you might put in a birthday card to a novelist friend for a laugh yeah i mean the thing is if he's if he's as as, as i was just reading there one of the great minds if not the greatest mind of the 20th century he can't possibly actually think this do you know what i mean so i don't think it's a question of being generous i think it's a question of seeing the ludicrousness of this like utterly arch position and taking it on its own terms, it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a humorous and waspish takedown, isn't it? Of as as is likely a friend of his, you know. Yeah, probably. But it's um, the novel's always been subject to this kind of criticism, isn't it? Is it? It's, always, it's, it's been regarded as the sort of uh, slightly tacky younger cousin of great literature, just by virtue of a, a virtue of two things, I suppose: being being new by its definition, but also by being read by less educated people by women it's actually very often i think it comes up in jane austen's novels doesn't it of characters being really um sniffy about people who read read novels right as if it's a really kind of flippant frivolous thing to do so there's what you're saying is that there's there's people were alive at that time more to this kind of cultural positioning that people had taken and he's playing to that to that idea that you've just had yeah i think so i think it's probably still true i I, uh, I wonder how Auden would have felt about internet bloggers (laughs) (laughs) well that is a very good question the the youtuber would be uh, that's the yeah that'd be a poem poem worth reading wouldn't it by Auden? it's a nice uh form formally it's a it's a semi-perfect sonnet i think um and how have you guys got it laid out i've got it laid out in this weird way which is four four three three in line, yeah, same, same. Um, yeah, me is, too. So the stanzas are slightly, uh, uh, slightly odd. I mean, it, it feels like it could just as easily lay out in a more in a more classic sonnet structure. Yeah, uh, no, I think you're right. Uh, incidentally, just uh, just to leap back there for a second, since I googled it, uh, uh, a hussar is a soldier in a light cavalry regiment which had adopted a dress uniform modelled on that of the Hungarian hussars, and they are a 15th century uh, Hungarian light horseman. So the Queen's Royal Irish Hussars, for example, are just taking that title from a uh, late medieval Hungarian horseman. Half a league, half a league, half a league onward. That's the meaning and etymology of the word hussar. What was it? Light cavalry? Yeah. Anyway, they can dash forward like hussars. So they can move quickly. They can be um, energetic. They can be young and dynamic. And they can get their point across uh, 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 dramatically like a thunderstorm. But in a quick yeah, that's way. That's poets. Yeah, those are poets. Whereas he has to struggle out of his boyish gift, which I think is an interesting, which is an interesting way to say it, isn't it? Because his boyish gift is like his natural talent. And instead, learn how to be plain and awkward. So the boyish gift is the gift of language, of poetry, of the kind of the natural spirit that lives within you. And he instead has to learn how to be plain and awkward because uh, uh, because prose is plain and awkward. How do you pass the juxtaposition of plain and awkward? When, when he says plain, he means straightforward, doesn't he? Mm. But it could also mean ugly. 
Yeah, I thought pl- I thought ugly. Yeah, both of those work work quite well. Mm, can you that's be straightforward and awkward? I think that's why I'm interested in that idea. No, I think he means he means he means plain as in like a you know, a, it's, it's something you don't want in your food. You know, you don't want your food to be plain. Um, yeah, but that just means it's straightforward. I think it means it bland, it complex flavors. It means bland. Yeah, well, it doesn't have complex flavors, which in literature is not what you want, is it? You know, you don't want. A, you know, he's, I think he's basically saying prose is inherently plain and awkward compared to poetry. Yeah, as unattractive, I think. Yeah, it's boring and vulgar. And uh, I'll just throw throw it in there. I think looking at it, awkward maybe is more of the um, the idea of having to devise plots and longer structures maybe yeah i don't know yeah yeah yeah. well things you have to learn yeah but he also seems to think that if you write a novel you have to slum it down with all of the things that are wrong with humanity uh because that's what novels are seemingly all about yeah dwell on whereas poetry is about you know the higher plane of being yeah Uh, among the just be just among the filthy filthy too I mean, yeah, I can see why this. You, you, you guys are reading this, I'm sure, correctly as a kind of a bit of a, a wry gag. And in his own weak person, if he can, dully put up with all the wrongs of man. How do you take that last line? Yeah, he's not even giving the novelist the credit of being able to do anything about it. It's not saying right the wrongs of man, is it? It's like just kind of accept... And I suppose kind of echo them and and repeat them it seems to be what all that a novelist can do. Well, I suppose is I mean maybe that's it, isn't it? That's the idea of the great novelist to deal with you know human mendacity on its uh, le- different levels of complexity. And yeah, he seems to be, if not uh, exonerating himself from that. Uh, uh, he is uh, su- suggesting certainly that poets don't have to put up with all the wrongs of man, that they don't have to, um, that their subject isn't purely the sort of social dynamics of human cupidity. But yeah, I think it's probably, you're right, it's, it's very much to do with an idea that was probably more current when poets had this more elevated status, which I think the more I look at this whole the whole idea of W.H. Auden does seem to have been true at that time. Yeah. Mm. I don't think there's much more in this poem, um, unless we're misreading it dramatically, but I don't think we are. No, I think it's, it's a fairly slight one. I mean, so there's, in my edition, it comes immediately before another sonnet called The Composer, which just at a glance looks like it might be a bit of a companion piece and obviously the title suggests that it is as well as though he's kind of considering the uh the the kind of um the role and the existence of different types of artists right i'll tell you what what we, as as we finish this section before I, I i ring my gong to go on to our second uh poem for discussion why don't without comment you just read us uh the composer david Okay, The Composer, uh, by W.H. Auden. All the others translate. The painter sketches a visible world to love or reject. Rummaging into his living, the poet fetches the images out that hurt and connect. From life to art by painstaking adaption. 
relying on us to cover the rift. Only your notes are pure contraption. Only your song is an absolute gift. Pour out your presence, a delight cascading the falls of the knee and the weirs of the spine, our climate of silence and doubt invading. You alone, alone, imaginary song, are unable to say an existence is wrong, and pour out your forgiveness like a wine. Okay, the next poem in our um, Auden Athon is called The Fall of Rome. Uh, have you got this one, Rob? Shall uh, I read it when you take a Yeah, by all means. Let me just get it up on screen. Yeah, cool. The Fall of Rome for Cyril Connolly. The piers are pummeled by the waves. In a lonely field, the rain lashes an abandoned train. Outlaws fill the mountain caves. Fantastic grow the evening gowns. Agent of the f- agents of the fisk pursue absconding tax defaulters through the sewers of provincial towns. Private rites of magic send the temple prostitutes to sleep. All the literati keep an imaginary friend. Cerebratonic Cato may extol the ancient disciplines, but the muscle-bound marines mutiny for food and pay. Caesar's double bed is warm, as an unimportant clerk writes, I do not like my work on a pink official form. Unendowed with wealth or pity, little birds with scarlet legs, sitting on their speckled eggs, I, each flu-infected city. Altogether elsewhere, vast herds of reindeer move across miles and miles of golden moss, silently and very fast okay the fall of rome by wh auden for cyril Connolly. the piers are pummeled by the waves in a lonely field the rain lashes an abandoned train outlaws fill the mountain caves fantastic grow the evening gowns Agents of the Fisk pursue absconding tax defaulters through the sewers of provincial towns. Private rites of magic send the temple prostitutes to sleep. All the literati keep an imaginary friend. Cerebratonic Cato may extol the ancient disciplines, but the muscle-bound marines of mutiny for food and pay. Caesar's double bed is warm as an unimportant clerk writes, I do not like my work, on a pink official form. Unendowed with wealth or pity, little birds with scarlet legs sitting on their speckled eggs, I each flew infected city. Altogether elsewhere, vast herds of reindeer move across miles and miles of golden moss silently and very fast wow <laughs> that's a different different did you like that one yeah yeah that's an interesting piece of work isn't it we've got a year for that one did you say january 1947 okay. no no 1940 i've got here oh crikey o'reilly oh. well probably revised I, in 47 then maybe yeah. 
Yeah. Well, 40, obviously, would be an interesting time insofar as it's in the war, year in. Yeah, I mean, I, I presume he's, he's drawing a comparison between the two eras. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. There's a fair bit in here I don't understand, I'll be honest. Yeah, me too. Well, I have to dig in here. I think this is going to take a bit of uh, take a bit of doing. Just on the, um, I must I must say, when I first bought this book, I was extremely disappointed that it didn't have the one poem that I knew, which is a poem that you're going to do, Rob. And I've subsequently read that, um, and I've mentioned it earlier on, that Auden was famous for revising his poems. He also withdrew poems, I suppose, a la Kubrick or whatever. Because, I mean, I've got this supposedly definitive edition, right? It's a beautiful book. I mean, to put it into perspective, it's £27.50 net in 1991. Um, And it says it's the definitive edition. I was only saying that the date of the poem in my edition, this edition, is January 1947. Whereas Robin is saying he's got one that's 1940. So what are we supposed to make from that? I mean, normally I would say, well, Robin's just wrong and the internet's (laughs) not not giving him the right information. But what I'm saying is I'm beginning to sort of sense that there may be a possibility that actually this was in a collection and it's appearing here as January 1947 in some sort of semi-revised edition. I don't know, but that seems to me possible given my growing sense of this control and revision that Auden exercised. Yeah. All of which doesn't really get us any closer to working out what it's all about. Why don't you hit us up, David, with what, <laughs> with what it is about? I was, I was terrified you were going to say that. Um, can we, let, should we start by pointing out that it's for Cyril Connolly? Oh, yeah, Rob knows who he is, apparently. And well, he's Yeah, a, I've got a vague appreciation of Cyril Connolly, but thinking about it, I don't really know. He was, just a, he was a literary critic, a sort of foremost literary yeah. critic of the 20th century, I think. He, I only mentioned him earlier on because he grew up on my... He was uh, educated on my street, this school, St Cyprian's, which uh, is no longer there, but it was at the bottom of my road, where he was also in with uh, Cecil Beaton and George Orwell, were his contemporaries, I believe. There. There's, wow. a blue, there's a blue plaque at the bottom of my road which has those three names on it, but I believe they were contemporaries. Wow, this is kind of a, a stellar street for. Oh yeah, big <laughs> time. Oh, no, it, 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 it really is. Yeah, well, Orwell's. I always think that's a bit of a winner to have Orwell on my road. But other than that, I don't really know that much about Cyril Connolly. Was Cyril Connolly the person who famously remarked that um, the enemy of promise is the pram in the hall? Yeah, that's that is the one thing I could have said about Cyril Connolly as well. That's a cracker of a quote, that is, really. So. <laughs> I'm sorry to you. It's so bleak. <laughs> yeah. So he's written it for Cyril Connolly, who is, we don't know, a literary critic of the 30s, who wrote Enemies of Promise and no doubt wrote in one of these criterion or one of these um, celebrated literary magazines of the 30s. Do you think that's about right? I have no idea. Yeah, yeah, I, I, think, that's, that's, I think that's true. That sounds exactly right. Yeah, why he's the dedicatee of this poem? I'm not sure. No. Shall I tell you what cerebrotonic Cato? Oh yeah, oh, do. That, you, that somebody should do. Yeah. Well, Is he a superhero? <laughs> <laughs> is it anything to do with the Pink Panther film? That's, that's the main. <laughs> that is a tricky here. word, isn't it? Cerebrotonic. I mean, in 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 reference to the previous uh, poem, the novelist, where he was um, saying the novelist had to be plain. Um, he, uh, Auden, is, clearly doesn't feel that... Um, because, I mean, you would think that that would send almost anyone running for a dictionary, um, which it has, has sent me running for a dictionary. 
Um, seroprotonic, I've never come across that word before except in this poem, but it apparently means... Kerry says someone... I use it much too much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you're using it correctly. Um, it means uh, apparently someone who... In it's it's like one of these things multi layers, but basically they used to think that p- people's physiognomy and their body type um, was an indication of their mental state, a bit like humours and that sort of thing, like old fashioned stuff. And it, apparently, if you were like a, a wiry, slim person, then your brain was more likely to be kind of um, what's it like intellectual and sort of. Um, you'd expend your energy on thinking more cerebral i guess it could be it could be cerebral yeah but it, 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 it i think it i think it implies a kind of a, a not not neuroses but like a nervous energy and a kind of commitment to what's right but also a kind of inhibition as well Oh, I see, because he's contrasting here Cerebrotonic Cato, who was extolling the ancient disciplines, uh, i.e. the sort of uh, the finer things, but the muscle-bound. So Cerebrotonic is, uh, is, is in contradistinction to muscle-bound marines, whose only interest is to mutiny for food and pay. Their ambitions are entirely protean. Uh, sort of, uh, is that the word? Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, now, now let's hit this. Let's go back to the start and try and work out what this poem's about because, to me, it seems a little bit mysterious. Uh, I mean, I think overall it feels as though it is making a comparison, as you say, between the ancient Rome and, I suppose, the modern era and the same sort of um, bureaucratic blundering and decadence is li- likely to lead to similar catastrophe i mean it feels quite apocalyptic and um catastrophic doesn't it overall does it i don't know let's read it again the piers are pummeled by the waves in a lonely field the rain lashes an abandoned train outlaws fill the mountain caves feels like the, the barbarians have won yeah right 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 yeah again it's the it's sort of after the end of civilization isn't it mm. What's fantastic? Grow the evening gowns. Um, I, I think I think it's about the the fantasticness of the clothing that they wore in the later Roman era, which which fed in very much to the medieval era. Yeah, fine, makes sense. Agents of the fisk. It's just the treasury, isn't it? Yeah, fisk the um, the tax collectors. Yeah. Okay. Uh, pursue absconding tax defaulters through the sewers of provincial towns. It sounds like a line from William Burroughs, that one, I have to say. Very <laughs> I say, I, either that or he's anticipating the third man. Yeah, no, it's very, very much a, a line that could come out of Burroughs, this idea of these mysterious agents pursuing tax defaulters through sewers. I mean, that's straight out of William Burroughs. Um, private rites of magic send the temple prostitutes to sleep. All the literati keep an imaginary friend. Ah, crikey. Private rites of magic. You feel that this is probably um, so packed with um, what's the word? You know, local knowledge, like uh, their, their own cultural milieu, that he knows what he's talking about here. Yeah, or that, or that this is stuff that's straight out of Gibbons. You know what I mean? And that this is like all yeah stuff which is actually accounts, you know, from ancient Rome. From um, right, right, yeah. You mean a specific allusion? No, to... I've got absolutely no idea. I'm just wildly speculating. No, no, but it could well speculating. be speculating. Yeah. But I mean, even just read at face value, 
private rites of magic send the temple prostitutes to sleep i mean that that he's you know that that's what was going on in roman empire wasn't it that there were these temples everywhere and people coming and paying their sacrifices or you know a votive offering to the gods but is it saying is it saying that these private rites of magic um they're so boring what were once these great rituals, these important religious rites, all they're doing now is just sending prostitutes to sleep because everyone, <laughs> they're just the people who are doing them are just surrounded by whores, you know. Yeah, I guess um, that, must, that makes sense. Yeah. They, they, they've, they're no longer of interest to anyone. And, and again, it, things have become so decadent that the temple is just full of prostitutes. All the literati keep an imaginary friend. So again, it's like the end of something. It's like, you know, the tax defaulters are being pursued through the sewers. Do you know what? I've just had a thought inspired by your comments there, mm-hmm. and I don't know if it's right, but it could be the dawn of Christianity. Oh, all the literati keep an imaginary friend. I wonder who that is. <laughs> uh, are you being facetious? or? <laughs> no, I mean, that, is that what you're talking about? You're talking about that's yeah. Christ. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It could be, couldn't it? And private rites of magic, in other words, the, in other words, a contrast between the, you know, the 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 the, the, the spread of the Christian sect, um, yeah, in contrast to the uh, to the religions, the polytheistic deities, etc., of the Roman Empire. Or, or it's just a thought. Or it's saying, or it's saying that the, the the anyone who's involved in literature is so incredibly lonely because they've got no readership. That there's nobody listening. That they have to <laughs> yeah. they have to imagine a reader. Well, that's how I first read it. Actually, yeah. but it was only just what you were saying just now that made me think maybe it was something else. But yeah, yeah. yeah. Cerebrotonic Cato makes stole the ancient disciplines, but the muscle bound marines mutiny for food and pay. I think these every these all so far. I think all four of these. Um, Stanzas are basically the same idea, which is that, 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 that it's over, it's ended. You know, civilization has come to a close. I mean, it is called the fall of Rome. We don't need to interpret that very strongly. Uh, uh, so I think that, you know, we're talking about that there has been a uh, fall from grace. You know, the abandoned train, the, you know, the tax defaulters in the sewers, the bored prostitutes the literati having to imagine a readership, let's assume for the moment, since that seems to be more in keeping with the tone of the poem. And then the same thing again, Cerebratonic Cato's extols the ancient disciplines, but the reality is that now muscle-bound marines are just mutinying for food and pie. Uh, Yeah. Let's keep going. Caesar's double bed is warm. As an unimportant clerk writes, I do not like my work on a pink official form. Now we seem to have drifted away from ancient Rome and be in this modern era. Yeah. And the banality of that, the unimportant Clark writing, I do not like my work on a pink official form, just seems so utterly pedestrian and banal. And also the slight, what's the word? It's it's not quite, um, it's a suggestion, isn't it? Caesar's double bed is warm. There's something, mm, there's, a, there's a kind of, one imputes or it is suggested that there's something not quite right going on there yeah or a certain sense of moral laxity yeah oh really how do you mean well it's not caesar's bed is warm as in caesar uh is just laying in a cozy environment his double bed is warm like caesar seems to be happy and pleasing himself and taking the pleasures of the world Whereas the clerk is okay. dissatisfied. Yeah, 
think. Uh, well, also, it's, it's Caesar. It's Caesar is not riding a horse and being at the head of the the army or doing anything meaningful, is he? He's just sure. either sure. in bed or shagging. We don't know what. As Dan says, there might be some suggestion of turpitude there. But I mean, either way. That's how he's being presented in this poem, is being in a bed. You know that Auden was in the 30s, like, because um, they were all kind of left-wing, weren't they? It was like a thing to be socialist and... Um, yeah. If not communist. Um, and I wonder if um, the unimportant Clark is possibly, you know, the um, the oppressed classes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that sounds entirely plausible. And do we think that that brings that reference, which is obviously not out of um, Rome, but into, well, presumably they didn't have pink official forms, um, brings us into the present day for the rest of the poem? Maybe so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that we're now brought up to, we're brought up to time. Uh, yeah, I think you're time, right. Yeah. I think it's I think it's working on 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 both levels because you could, in terms of time, you could read it right to the end as taking place at the end of the Roman Empire. But I think you're right. That pink official form definitely brings us into the modern bureaucratic world, doesn't but, it? But also, it's the same thing, isn't it? Which is to say that this clerk is being disobedient. He's defacing a for an official form because he can, because he doesn't like his work and he can say what he wants. Yeah, no so, yeah. so order is no longer being preserved, or the, or the the old guard are no longer watching. You know. Yeah. Also, he's he's revolutionary. Isn't yeah, he's he? a revolutionary. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's mutinies going on in the army, and even in the most trivial level of municipal government, people are being insubordinate, and and uh, you know, it's just another mark of the gradual slide into chaos or decadence or whatever, or you know, the end of civilization. Unendowed with wealth or pity, little birds with scarlet legs sitting on their speckled eggs, I each flew infected city. That's an incredible stanza. Agreed. We seem to be in a completely different poem all of a sudden. But each, I each flew infected city. So now we're getting to something else, which is there's this there are, there is a, an epidemic or a pandemic which is sweeping mm-hmm. across civilization. Mm-hmm. And these mm-hmm. and just little birds are pitilessly watching. Nature is just eyeing us in this with this kind of blank expression, watching the cities fall. While altogether elsewhere, vast herds of reindeer move across miles and miles of golden moss silently and very fast. So that's just to me that just reads like an image of of just nature going on without us. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. that Rome is falling. It doesn't matter that civilization is coming to an end. There's this other thing is happening. Life will move on. Things will continue without us, without Caesar, without the Marines, without, you know, tax collectors, without the fisc, without the trains, without the temple prostitutes and the rest of it. That somehow, somehow the herds of reindeer will just continue to move. It's a very, yeah. very, very strong ending to a poem. It's a fantastic ending, isn't it? I mean, it's a little bit like, David, you mentioned that poem, The Musée de Beaux-Arts, which I think is a similar sort of idea about things go on and other people don't notice. That's right, isn't but, it? Yeah. But this is, this is it on a grander scale. 
But what's interesting in a way about the ending of that poem, which I love, and in a way it's the sort of, it's the sort of, uh, I, I don't think it's a literary term of criticism in the <clears throat> in the dictionary of literary critical terms I have somewhere. But I think the Raiders of the Lost Ark ending, isn't it, where it sort of shifts the perspective to this much huger yeah. perspective. Yeah. But it's interesting that you couldn't write that today, could you? So th- that's in a way, um, I think you couldn't write it today because of our anxieties about <laughs> about the reindeers and their miles and miles of golden moss. Um, in in his poetic vision, mankind is really small against the true background of the sort of vast infinity of nature and its multitudes. Um but somewhere between January 1947 and August 2020, I think we we lost that confidence in the respective proportionate power of, of, of civilization versus nature. Anyway, I just throw that in. Yeah, yeah. I, I understand, I understand. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, a, it's, but, a, it's an interesting choice of um, sort of comparison to make, isn't it, the, the reindeer? Uh, the, so they're moving really quickly but silently. Uh, so I guess it's implied that humanity is making a lot of noise but not moving forward at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, that's kind of where he finishes. Um, did you know about... Uh, this makes me think of a really brilliant fact about reindeer. Um, apparently, cause, because they are constantly on the move, obviously constantly kind of migrating, looking for feeding grounds. Apparently the average reindeer uh, during the course of its lifespan goes the equivalent... travels the equivalent distance of... Um, circling the entire globe three times wow that's a great reindeer fact <laughs> yeah. have, have you got have you got any more that's my only reindeer fact but i do think it's i imagine reindeer. if you're one of the astronauts on the iss you're like yeah and but for <laughs> me it hasn't left eastbourne in weeks that's very very impressive yeah. it's a long way uh, yeah, no, for sure. That's a great reindeer effect. Um, that fits absolutely, doesn't it? Because I mean, it's it's this idea that these vast herds of reindeer move across miles and miles of golden moss silently and very fast. And it's it's that and very fast, isn't it? That they're they're continuing with their huge endeavours, um, completely unmindful. Of the and, um, and unnoticed as well. Silently, I just think means that compared to compared to Rome, which we you know has made this huge mm. noise, you know that we we all remember Rome, and indeed our own civilization, which we are completely obsessed with its every detail, you know, but really are just the petty goings on of a bunch of noisy animals. Um, you know, if we look at this on a on a sort of of, of a grander scale, vast herds of reindeer are achieving these incredible goals you know in nature and 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 nobody notices and nobody cares you know so i think it's just it's just a question of just pulling out it's just you know it's 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 pulling out from these very detailed uh little vignettes he's given us so the the unimportant official and the and the mutineering marines and the bored prostitutes and and so on and then suddenly giving this much more kind of global view of you know, suddenly, a sort of almost a planetary scale um, of what else is going on that we're just not aware of. You know, as we obsess over the sort of you know decay and uh, decadence of our own civilization, or, or something. I'm not entirely sure. I have to say. 
Yeah, no, I think that's right. And and I guess the fact that it's up in the Arctic or, or wherever it's implied, it's got that kind of, um, you know, the the isolation and, and the fact that people sort of know that that probably is going on, but you just don't ever think about it, you know. Yeah. But what's the poem saying in 1940, I mean, what's, or 1947, or whenever we would make, like to assume it's written, I mean, what's it about? Well, on one level, it is a good poem about the fall of Rome, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's the fall of Rome with the Raiders of the Lost Ark ending. In other words, it does go through these, as you've just said, very beautifully uh, or certainly um, effectively rendered vignettes of aspects of the Roman Empire. Um, and it's interesting that it starts with the, the natural imagery, the piers are pummeled by the waves. And then, of course, that almost does set up the ending where he's going to return to this this natural world in a lonely field, the train, which I get, the rain lashes an abandoned train. And the abandoned train could be a, um, a group of soldiers, couldn't it? Is that, is that right? A train of sort of, it could be a soldiers or merchants or whatever. Maybe a, a train was a group of people travelling together. And in any case, wasn't it, with perhaps some horses and carriages. Um, and he, 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 he evokes the late empire. Yeah, yeah. The, the evening gowns, the, the bureaucracy, the marines, and he's sort of saying that the empire uh, fell, but but no, you know, but 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 it but set against. I mean, I think this is what it's it it is, isn't it? It's set against this incredible power of the natural world. It wasn't all that. Yeah, yeah. That there's this other sort of natural. Uh, spectacle. Yeah, the power of these vast herds of reindeer yeah, just sort of, going about are their sort business. Of awesome, if you actually give them a, awesome. a, a, exactly. a moment to, to think about them, then uh, then you realise that there's something almost gr- that's, greater that's than, the, than the than than the collected right. works of man. You know, that there's something really Absolutely. spectacular going on that we're just yeah, um, silently and very fast. That's amazing. Those last two stanzas are really extraordinary. Well, it definitely feeds nicely into the final choice. Okay. Okay. Uh, you better rock it. I would say. Uh, I'm going to ring my gong. This is uh, a poem I've never read, but it's apparently very, very good. So it's called September the 1st, 1939 by W.H. Auden. I sit in one of the dives on 52nd Street, uncertain and afraid as the clever hopes expire of a low, dishonest decade. Waves of anger and fear circulate over the bright and darkened lands of the earth, obsessing our private lives. The unmentionable odour of death offends the September night. Accurate scholarship can unearth the whole offence from Luther until now that has driven a culture mad. Find what occurred at Linz, what huge imago made a psychopathic god. I and the public know what all school children learn. Those to whom evil is done do evil in return. Exiled Thucydides knew 
all that a speech can say about democracy and what dictators do, the elderly rubbish they talk to an apathetic grave, analysed all in his book, the enlightenment driven away, the habit-forming pain, mismanagement and grief. We must suffer them all again. Into this neutral air where blind skyscrapers use their full height to proclaim the strength of collective man, each language pours its vain competitive excuse. But who can live for long in, in an euphoric dream? Out of the mirror they stare, imperialism's face and the international wrong. Faces along the bar cling to their average day. The lights must never go out, the music must always play. All the conventions conspire to make this fort assume the furniture of home. Lest we should see where we are, lost in a haunted wood, children afraid of the night, who have never seen, or who have never been happy or good. The windiest Militant trash, important persons, shout, is not so crude as our wish. What mad Nijinsky wrote about Diaghilev is true of the normal heart. For the error bred in the bone of each woman and each man craves what it cannot have. Not universal love, but to be loved alone. From the conservative dark into the ethical life the dense commuters come, repeating their morning vow. I will be true to the wife. I'll concentrate more on my work. And helpless governors wake to resume their compulsory game. Who can release them now? Who can reach the deaf? Who can speak for the dumb? All I have is a voice to undo the folded lie. The romantic lie in the brain of the sensual man in the street, and the lie of authority whose buildings grope the sky. There is no such thing as the state, and no one exists alone. Hunger allows no choice to the citizen or the police. We must love one another, or die. Defenceless under the night, our world in stupor lies. Yet, dotted everywhere, ironic points of light flash out wherever the just exchange their messages. May I, composed like them of eros and of dust, beleaguered by the same negation and despair, show an affirming flame. Awesome. Okay, awesome. Shall we, we probably just... Should we continue the discussion straight away rather than read that again okay yeah sure well he um as i say for for whatever reason and obviously anyone who knows anything about Auden will probably know what that reason is had this um taken out of his collected poems <clears throat> so i don't know why he did that perhaps we should look at the poem first and then wonder why he did well, it's, I mean, it's obviously very important to say that this is two days before the outbreak of the Second World War. Uh, presumably that's the date it's written, September the 1st, 1939. I'm just making that assumption. I might be wrong. Uh, that's its title anyway. And um, uh, I imagine by September the 1st, 1939, it was pretty obvious that the war was about to come. 
uh, insofar as two days later we were at war. I'm right in that, aren't I? It was September the 3rd, 1939. Is that, right? is, that, is that the exact date? Uh, uh, let me just quickly double-check that. Off, no, no, it is right. Off the, the top Chamberlain. of my head. <clears throat> the Chamberlain... Yeah, let me just double check that. 1939, September the 3rd, 1939. It was a Sunday. Uh, yeah, that was it. So we were, Neville Chamberlain announced at 11.15 a.m. that uh, the Britain and Germany were at war. Yeah, so it's and two days before that. Who was it that, who said uh, the, the lights are going out across Europe? That's a, that's a Wasn't that Churchill? Occasion, isn't it? I've got a feeling, and I don't know the answer to it exactly, but I've got a feeling that it was JFK's dad. Oh, really? Oh, really? Good one. Who was the ambassador to the court of St. James at that time. Or, no, actually, that's got to be wrong. It's got to be wrong. It's got to have been a journalist. Maybe it was Edwin Morrow uh, from the... Edward Morrow. Edward Morrow no, no, from the... No, it says, The lamps are going out all over Europe. We shall not see them lit again in our lifetime. The British Foreign Secretary, Sir Edward Grey, remarked to a friend on the eve of the United Kingdom's entry into the First World War. Ah. No, no. Oh, really? Yeah. I thought there was a radio broadcast, though, to America from London. And I know that uh, Kennedy's dad was the, the ambassador, uh, but maybe it was a journalist who did it. But yeah, yeah. I, I, okay, well, that's one one to be. But yeah, so, the, so that was about the first world war. But that's this is clearly making allusions to that, isn't it? Anyway, it's a couple of times he refers to lights going out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, oh, I mean, hang on. I guess uh, 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 Churchill did say. I did say to Churchill. He did say, but it's not the quite quote quite the quote we were thinking of. He said uh, in his speech from 1938, the lights are going out. But there's still time for those to whom freedom and parliamentary government mean something to consult together. Oh, that's not quite the same moment. Sorry, carry on. Perhaps it was a a metaphor that was in in, in current use. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, I mean, I think the whole thing with we haven't really um, well, we've read that Fall of Rome poem, which we've argued the toss about the date of, and obviously the novelist was more of a a larky thing. Um, I mean, I think that whole thing in the 30s and the whole bit is. Of, of Auden and his opus is the kind of unease and the fear that there will be another war. Um, so this is, in a way, one could say, is probably a sort of a culmination of 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 his work, of his anxieties and the anxieties that that, that many people had at that time. And of course, it's written on Fifty Second Street, which mm. I guess we probably walk past Rob on our little walking to walk around York, Manhattan yeah. yeah presumably so yeah uh, waves of anger and fear circulate over the bright and darkened land, lands of the earth obsessing our private lives the unmentionable odour of death offends the September night I mean it's pretty pretty grim stuff there I mean it's, he's he's in New York the war is imminent he, I mean, it must have been terrifying. Oh, absolutely horrific, yeah. It would, it would probably be about as terrifying as any mention of great power war would be to us today. Yeah. I mean, it would be... I mean, it's so far from our thoughts. Um, but it wasn't far from, from his thoughts or from uh, from the thoughts in the 30s, I guess. And it's and it's happened. Um and they know that there's going to be 
an appalling war. And he had been to Spain, and of course that was, I think, where the the first um, aerial, you know, the air force bombings had taken place. Guernica. They knew, yeah. they, they, they knew what the colour of the war was going to be like. Um, of course, the what actually transpired in the Second World War became worse than anything anyone could have imagined. But um, they knew it was going to be bad. He says, after the first stanza, he says, the unmentionable odour of death offends the, the September night at the end of that stanza. Then he says in the second stanza, accurate scholarship can unearth the whole offence from Luther until now that has driven a culture mad. Find what occurred at Linz, what huge imago made a psychopathic god. I and the public know what all ch- school children learn. Those to whom evil is done do evil in return. Now that's a bit conflicted, isn't it? Because he's saying that Germany's gone crazy and has got a psychopathic god. Um, but what's he saying in those last four lines of that? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of he's offering an excuse, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, it does seem to be a bit of an apology for mm. what happened after the First World War. I'm beginning to think this may be why he withdrew this poem. Mm, I wonder. Because it's a sort of a Versailles theme, yeah. isn't it, in the Nazi propaganda? Oh, uh, I see. That Germany had been ill-treated. Yeah. And he he had been to Berlin in the... 19, let's say 1930, 1929. What's an imago? I think that's, um, you know, like, what's the opposite of a butterfly? Mm. Like, when it's young. A cocoon? A chrysalis. I think I think that's what an imago... Well, let's just let's look it up. I think an imago is a, an insect that goes through this stage of transition. Mm. So he's explicitly talking about Hitler there, isn't he? The mention of Linz is Hitler. And the psychopathic god is Hitler, obviously. It's what you just said, isn't it? Yeah, but there appears to be a kind of a, what did we expect? Yeah, because those to whom evil is done do evil in return. So we're saying that uh, Hitler has had evil done to him mm. by dint of, obviously, the First World War, presumably. It's also, I mean, he takes the opportunity, once again, to have a dig at the, his own time, doesn't he? The, the, the low, dishonest decade. Yeah, as though they're just kind of reaping the rewards of of something, of 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 um, whatever it is that he disapproves of about about the whole time. Yeah, because there's I think there's a there's a sort of a um, uh, sort of la- lament about the death of all kinds of things that, that's going on through all of these poems, isn't there? A, a yeah. sort of a death of a, a, a cultural death. Yeah. Um, um, above above all else, and there's also he makes these references to love as well, and um, there's a bit that reminded me of that bit from from the novelist where he re- makes a reference to love being alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, something about how what we want there it is. Yeah, each woman and man craves what it cannot have, not universal love, but to be loved alone. And um, perhaps it's that selfishness. Yeah. That he is most bemoaning, um, because of course, yeah, the uh, the probably the you know the the iconic line from this poem, which I must admit I thought was the last line, and isn't the last line of the poem. It's actually the last line of the penultimate stanza. Yeah, 
uh, we must love one another or die, which is about as good as it, as it gets as a kind of motto. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to argue with that, really, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Take us back a little bit, David. Have a look at one of the earlier stanzas. How about the second one? Uh, we've sort of talked about the second yeah, stanza. Yes, the third one, yeah. Third, sorry. I don't know about uh, Thucydides, I'm afraid. Does anyone? Oh, I'm googling it right now. Hold on, you carry on. Apart from that, he was. Sorry, it's it's it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a thing to throw at you, but I mean, um... he was an Athenian historian in general. His history of the Peloponnesian War recounts the fifth century BC war between Sparta and Athens until the year 411 BC. He has been dubbed the father of scientific scientific history by those who accept his claims to have applied strict standards of impartiality and evidence gathering. So he was an intellectual, an Athenian. Uh, intellectual who was born in roughly 460 BC and died roughly 400 BC. Uh, so he has been the father of the school of political realism. He's basically saying this bloke, this classical uh, historian, understood this stuff, understood what dictators do, understood democracy. Sorry, carry on, David, but that's that's what those first four lines mean. The elderly rubbish they talk to an apathetic grave, analysed all in, oh, in his book, the enlightenment driven away, the habit forming pain, mismanagement and grief, we must suffer them all again. He's just basically saying that um, these breakdowns, these political disruptions have all been sort of covered in the past and now we're going to have to go through it all again. Yeah, yeah. Into this neutral air. America. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, ne- neutral being politically neutral, of course, as well, at this point. I mean, there, is no, there isn't war, right? Not in America. No. Where blind skyscrapers use their full height to proclaim the strength of collective man. So, yeah, he's in New York. He's like, over here, there's this sense of... Um, sense of purpose, you know, which is that uh, we are moving forwards into the future, collectively. But each language pours its vain competitive excuse. So that's the different languages. And its its excuse is essentially competitive. It's not um, <laughs> harmoniously intended. Yeah, OK. Keep going. But who can live for long in an euphoric dream? Out of the mirror they stare imperialism's face and the international wrong. What's the um, international wrong, then? I mean, is this harking back to the evil that was done, them to evil is done to evil in return? Well, I hadn't thought that until this moment, but it's beginning to be apparent to me why he didn't, why he thought this poem wasn't maybe conducive to the sort of post-war environment, which was very much, presumably, and rightly so. The Allies won and the Nazis didn't have a lot of good points. I mean, that doesn't seem to be something you could argue long and hard. Um, So maybe post-facto... You know, he's, he felt maybe his poetic inspiration was, yeah, if that is right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, perhaps the situation looked a little bit um, uh, more ambiguous or more uh, nuanced in uh, before the First World War than afterwards when we had the, you know, the uh, exposing of the uh, death camps, uh, Holocaust, Auschwitz, the rest of it, mm. at which point the, the trivial nuances of September the 1st, 1939 seemed almost in embarrassingly um, trivial compared to what had happened in the previous six years, you know. Um, I suppose that's what you're saying. 
So, yeah, we can complain about uh, the 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 nature of imperialism in, uh, in 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 British or American foreign policy, but let's face it: the Second World War was a just war against you know tyranny and evil, and therefore you know there's not really mm. much nuance worth exploring in terms of what foreign policy decisions ultimately led us there. It had to happen. We had to fight it. Yeah. And Hitler had it would to be, be defeated, like if, you know? if you had written a brilliant poem, um, sitting in a bar, some way from the likely um, source of uh, likely protagonists in the conflict, you had fleed the likely battlegrounds, um, <laughs> and two days before the war kicked off, you were. Uh, you were writing in a bar in... I'm not sure where you'd go to avoid any likely putative next world war. Um, but no, but perhaps... I, see I, I, see, I see what you're saying. In particular, in, in, in this... I mean, it would be like writing snarky uh, poems about, um, I don't know, uh, uh, the uh, hawkish foreign policy of Barack Obama yeah. um, uh, <laughs> right before an enormous conflict uh, brought about by Donald Trump, at which point <laughs> you might... We were going to go back and, uh, and re-evaluate your, uh, your, uh, your uh, earlier poem, yeah. No, it makes well. Yeah, it's more like you're sitting in a bar in. Do they have bars in the Antarctic? Probably one or two. There's yeah. probably one or two. Because <laughs> people love to go there, don't they? People who say that their passion is travel. <laughs> Always makes me laugh. Um, <laughs> what are your hobbies? Travel. Um, yeah. So you're. you're but there, but there probably are because people do go to the Antarctic now, don't they? So there probably is a bar somewhere on the Antarctic. You're, you're sitting on the Antarctic, yeah. I, I love that quote from uh, I think it's the uh, it's the uh, I think it's that kind of what it's called. I think it's called Encounters at the End of the World, the Werner Herzog film, where he says, um, "When you go to the Antarctic, it's like somebody shook the world, <laughs> and everyone who wasn't properly held down just fell down to the bottom." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're in a bar and you're saying. Um, the, the 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 belligerence in this war that's about to break out in two days' time, uh, you know they both they both uh, it's 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 you know one is not better or worse than the other. Admittedly, one has a psychopathic. Um, does he say dictator? What does he say? A psychopathic. Something. Yeah, God, a psychopathic it's, God. It's, yeah. It's, it's God. Yeah. Out of the mirror they stare. Imperialism's face and the international wrong. So basically, like the leadership. Of both sides are kind of bad, is that right? The international wrong, you know, general capitalist exploitation or something yeah, yeah. like that. Mm. Yeah, and, and, and questionable foreign policy, as I say, you know. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. It's essentially, uh, that's, that's the thing, isn't it? Once, once the war is properly underway and then for many, many years afterwards, this is not a fashionable view. I mean, yeah. that's gone right out of the window. The idea yeah. that, we, you know what, we shouldn't have punish Germany quite but, but, so hard. But I, think, but I think now we all do feel it, don't we? I mean, we do, you know, when he says, out of the mirror they stare, imperialism's face and the international wrong. I mean, we all know what, you know, that, that, that uh, you know, the foreign policy over the last, you know, in the Middle East, for example, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, etc. You know, we know that our foreign policy uh, objectives are, you know, dubious in some instances outright yeah, yeah, yeah. you know so i mean i think that's that, that 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 idea now has got a bit more currency than it no doubt had in 1945 you know when we just yeah. had to but that's i think that's probably presumably when he when he 
suppressed it. I mean, even if, it, if it, even if it was in the nineteen sixties, yeah, uh, you know, the, uh, everybody would have still been thinking, well, we shouldn't have appeased Hitler for as long as we did. Not, not we shouldn't have clobbered Germany with yeah, reparations, uh, extensive reparations. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's carry on. Faces along the bar cling to their average day. The lights must never go out. The music must always play. All the conventions conspire to make this fort assume the furniture of home, lest we should see where we are. Lost in a haunted wood, children afraid of the night, who have never been happy or good. That's a very haunting and uh, despairing stanza, it strikes me. We're in this bar in the, in the day. You know, there's a certain artificiality about it, the lights and the music. And how these conventions, which are both uh, decorative, you know, architectural, etc., but also social conventions, the conventions conspire to make this fort assume the furniture of home. Because we don't look at the truth. Again, it's that looking in the mirror again. It's out of the mirror they stare again, isn't it? You know, because if we really look at where we are, we see that we're lost in a haunted wood. Mm. We are children afraid of the night who have never been happy or good. So we are actually flawed, sad children lost in a haunted wood. And so because of that, we choose to dress everything up in this kind of, you know, gaudy, you know, environment of the bar and with music and light and, you know, and so on. Which again is a pretty is a pretty despairing image when you imagine this guy sitting in a bar in you know New York, and around him these you know what does he say faces along the bar cling to their average day, but he's seeing he feels he's seeing some underlying reality, and the underlying reality is is that these are just children in a haunted wood. It's uh, powerful stuff. I agree. I think it's um, it's a poet at the sort of peak of his powers and I think he 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 felt this sort of political commitment to be uh, to to use the the word of the times I think journalistic <clears throat> and to be honest and I, and I think you know that this is this is that I mean it comes off the page so powerfully I feel mm. that he's sitting there in the bar writing this I mean that it can't you can't get any other sense of it no I, no I mean it's He's, he's there, he's literally gone to a bar and he's literally writing this poem in desperation and panic and fear. And As Hitler is rolling tanks into Poland. Indeed. Yeah, I hope it happened like that. I hope, no, yeah, for, for the yeah, sake of... He wasn't sitting around <laughs> dictating it to his secretary from his <laughs> bath. <laughs> well, what um, I hope happened is that he, he wrote all this in one, in one uh, maudlin burst in this bar, got really drunk... And then read it out loud to a bunch of completely nonplussed New Yorkers in a, yeah. <laughs> about one in the morning. Yeah, yeah, we're like, uh, like Norman Cliff at the end of the bar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Lost going, in a haunted wood. What's he Children afraid say, of the night. Say, Sammy, who's your friend? <laughs> <laughs> Who have never been happy or good. <laughs> Uh, okay. Did you just say we were children afraid of the night? <laughs> yeah. uh, dumb limey. Uh, that's uh, yeah. That's a pretty. Um, uh, it's a pretty. It's a pretty extraordinary um, uh, in, uh, analysis or insight, isn't it? And also, 
you know, the, the idea, I suppose, that people like to think they're happy and good. That's how we all like to imagine ourselves. We're happy. We're living our happy lives and we're good people. You know, that's a kind of a classic image of Americans, isn't it? You know, that we're happy uh, and American culture is a sort of harmonious and happy place where we're all good people. And this idea that actually, no, hang on a second. Lest we should see where we are lost in a haunted wood, children afraid of the night who have never been happy or good. Uh, you know, begging the question, well, what are we then? You know, we're just frightened children. It's a bit too much. Maybe that's why we withdrew it. It was like, Jesus Christ. Yeah, particularly if he was this planning is... on staying there. <laughs> <Just> like... <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, he was because he did stay there. Yeah. Uh, OK, let's... Uh, 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 David, would you like to take the next one on? The windiest militant trash. Important person's shout is not so crude as our wish. What Mad Nijinsky wrote about Diaghilev is true of the normal heart. For the error bred in the bone of each woman and each man craves what it cannot have, not universal love, but to be loved alone. We sort of covered that last bit uh, earlier, didn't we? Although it, the first bit, I must admit, again, got to proclaim my ignorance about Nijinsky and Diaghilev, what, what was written there and why. Nijinsky was a dancer, wasn't he? Um, I'm, I'm Googling again. Nijinsky wrote... But he almost tells us what it was that was whatever Nijinsky wrote about this other unknown person is true for the normal heart um, maybe what Nijinsky wrote is um, that the, the last few lines of the stanza that um, yeah. each woman and each man craves what it cannot have Okay, to be loved, to be alone. loved alone and this is where I feel there's a kind of a real personal heartfelt um tone to this stanza the windiest <laughs> militant trash i mean that's a phrase that needs to be brought back isn't it <laughs> the windiest militant trash important person's shout um is not so crude as our wish so in other words he must have been listening for years to what he's describing as militant trash Shouted by important persons. Uh, hang on one second. Uh, I just, just, I've just dug out this uh, this uh, Nijinsky Diaghilev stuff. This yeah, Nijinsky thing sounds incredible. Let me just quickly read you this. I mean, this is completely a sidebar, but just because we've just hit this. In January 1919, uh, Václav Nijinsky begins, began scribbling in a notebook. Seven weeks later, Swiss doctors studied four notebooks full of his writing and promptly interned him in a sanitarium for the mentally ill. He was only... 29 at the time he was schizophrenic and while his fame as the greatest dancer of his time never faded he lived the last 31 years of his life in seclusion and incoherence in and out of psychiatric hospitals and asylums uh anyway uh so his 1919 notebooks contained his final words addressed to the world that was his diary uh, so then he went off completely, going completely batshit insane and went to a mental hospital. Anyway, um, below are a few quotes from the diary relating to uh, Diaghilev. One of the quotes, which seems to be the one that we're talking about here. I loved him sincerely. And when he told me that the love of women was a terrible thing, I believed him. Uh, which may be what uh, Auden is referring to here. I don't know. I've not, I've, not, I've not helped. It hasn't helped me anyway. Anyone? Well, it's helped me in that I didn't know that about Nijinsky, and that's no. a 
pretty dramatic um, story um, to know about him and what he represents. Yeah, but that must be what he's referring to. Well, Mad, Mad Nijinsky uh, wrote about Diaghilev, and that's somehow true of the normal heart. The love of women was a terrible thing. For the error... For the error bred in the bone of each woman and each man craves what it cannot have, not universal love, but to be loved alone. Diaghilev wanted to be loved alone by Nijinsky, and therefore what people crave is to be loved alone, whereas what the non-error would be would be to crave universal love yeah and i mean that's true isn't it i mean Auden was in and out of religion and i think he was a anglican then a atheist then an anglican again or something like that but i mean oh here we go sorry just one last thing uh below the quotes from the diary relating sergey diaghilev the russian impresario who took the 19 year old nijinsky as a lover and made him the star of his ballet russe five years later when nijinsky left to marry diaghilev threw him out of his dance company and tried to destroy his career so this would have been common knowledge amongst Auden and his and diaghilev was some kind of svengali who told Nijinsky that he shouldn't love women, he should just love him. Maybe this was part of the reason why he withdrew it as well, because it was a bit too in your face. No, that Mad Nijinsky wrote about Dyalogilev is true of the normal heart. For the error bred in the bone of each woman and each man craves what it cannot have. Not universal love, but to be loved alone. So it's also saying it's the impossibility of being loved, being loved alone, isn't it? Yeah. Let's move on and see if, if if this clarifies. We may circle back to this interesting, uh, which seems uh, one, really a, a bit of a diversion from what the poem was about up to now. We seem we, well. I don't know because he say, he's saying we 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 want to be loved alone. We can't have that. Yes, I think that there is an element of personal, but this gives the poem that incredibly present and sort of real. It makes it more convincing that it's written at a bar in New York. Yeah. Um, that he's writing about himself he's not being loved alone he he Auden is not going to be loved alone but it also ties into the larger theme of the poem which is that people are selfish yeah and that they don't crave universal love that's the error yeah yeah from the conservative dark into the ethical life the dense commuters come this poem is incredibly contemporary yeah well, I just read that it was it, it was uh, became very popular after nine eleven. Did it? Mm. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, that's ironic. And, and but, was republished yeah. and pamphletized around nine eleven. Well, out of the mirror they stare. Imperialism's face and the international wrong. You know. Um, I don't think that's what he meant. Though. No, but uh, but you well, I don't know. Well, because I don't think, for instance, let's look at this stanza. When he says, from the conservative dark into the ethical life, the dense commuters come, you could read that. You've just said post 9-11. I mean, it's a controversial subject. I don't want to get into that, offending anyone. But I don't think he means from, you could read it as, you know, from the sort of quiet life, conservative, you know, private, dark. So that from the sort of private, you know, lives into the ethical life. You know, into the into the life of righteous retribution, uh, the dense commuters come. The everyman is now coming to, to 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 you know 
take a stand, repeating their morning vow, you know, I will be true to the wife, I'll concentrate more on work. This is all totally ironic. From the conservative dark in Auden's poem, I believe, actually means the conservative dark is their real deep-seated mystery and dark energies. Its ethical life is the life of the city, the public life, yeah, where, they have to, where they have to behave. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I haven't read the rest of the poem in light of what you've just said, but that is a very curious fact, if it's true. And again, repeating their morning vow, I will be true to the wife, I will concentrate more on wife. That's absolutely sardonic, isn't it? That, 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 that they say that to themselves, but that's not what they're going to do. And helpless governors wake to resume their compulsory game. Who can release them now? Who can reach the deaf? Who can speak for the dumb? <laughs> That's not an upbeat answer. No, it's a misanthropic situation he's looking into there, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know about misanthropic, because I think he believes at this point, while he's writing this poem, in the idea of universal love. They're helpless. The helpless governors wake to resume their compulsory game. They can't do anything about it. They're all pawns. Yeah, trapped. Yeah. They're deaf. Yeah. And they can't articulate what they can't articulate because they're trapped in a game. Speaking of articulating, he then refers, returns to himself for the first time for a long time and uh, his voice. So he feels like maybe he's equipped m more than the people he's just referred to to try and make sense of, of some of this. Yeah. yeah. Well, he's reaching down into this into himself in this situation, isn't he? The situation he finds himself into, this apparently kind of, uh, I mean, on the one hand, very frightening situation, but also one where he feels his own helplessness. You know, uh, you know, who can release him now? Who can reach the deaf? Who can speak for the dumb? You know, as a poet, this is, you know, surely part of what his yeah. his remit is. You know, his, his, his obligation, his responsibility as a poet, you know. But all he has is a voice. You know, all I have is a voice. It's not to say, but I have a voice. It's like, but all I have is a voice. To undo the folded lie, the romantic lie, and the brain of the sensual man in the street. And the lie of authority whose buildings grope the sky. Uh, Great line. Yeah. Buildings groping the sky. And then he says, there is no such thing as the state. This reminds me of that Life of Brian thing. There, we are all individuals. Uh, uh, and no one exists alone. Hunger allows no choice to the citizen or the police. We must love one another or die. So this is really a very, I mean, what, what now we call politically progressive, but it's really a, um, uh, a very humane concept, isn't it, of social justice and of sort of basic... You know, a apolitical in a way. It's saying, you know, we there is something uh, there is something much deeper underneath all of the um, momentary transient politics and uh, 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 and the lies we tell ourselves to keep the civilization going. There is something much more basic than that, which is that you know what he's what, what he's bracketing as the lie of authority whose buildings grope the sky, and he's saying we are in fact all joined. We are actually all, you know, we should all be committed to one another. We must love one it's another. It's a bit or like, die. Um, you know, the Byron's 
Darkness yeah. poem, that he he's actually experiencing it. You know, it's actually happening, mm. uh, but it's happening for political reasons. Um, all I have is a voice to undo the folded lie, the romantic lie in the brain of the sensual man. I mean, I can definitely see why he had this poem withdrawn now, mm. because it's, it's, well, at, at the end of the day, it's saying we should, there shouldn't be a war. And he must, and then obviously he subsequently changed his mind um, based on post facto analysis but at this time in 1939 he's saying and quite understandably and this is i think the problem for people who are, don't want war is that once the war starts you know win or lose then everything is changed mm. and it's interesting that he did in fact you know have this poem withdrawn but here he is in 1939 saying all I have is a voice to undo the folded lie, the romantic lie in the brain of the sensual man in the street, which is dismissive, isn't it? That the, the sensual yeah. man in the street is someone without sufficient cerebral, you know, autonomy. Uh, and the lie of authority whose buildings grope the sky. Again, I mean, you know, today we'd probably say that's problematic because who are these authorities who buildings grope the sky? It's sort of saying these, 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 financiers or these sort of powerful people who are in charge there is no such thing as the state and no one exists alone and then obviously the the crisis hunger allows no choice to the citizen or the police in other words if it becomes terrible the situation the economic situation becomes terrible there will be no choice we must love one another or die it's a it's a desperate state of affairs He's extremely worried about what's going to happen. And I'm not surprised. I mean, what would you do if you were the greatest poet in Britain in 1939? What would you be writing? Yeah. As I say, there is a sense of responsibility there, isn't there? Mm. Uh, Let's get to the end. Uh, Defenceless under the night, our world in stupor lies. Okay, that's pretty straightforward. Yet dotted everywhere, ironic points of light flash out wherever the just exchange their messages ironic points of light flash out wherever the just uh, I, I don't know about your uh, uh, copies here but the just is capitalised J uh, yeah which which he did in the previous part, that's that's correct yeah he did yeah um, defenceless under the night our world is stupid lies yet dotted everywhere ironic points of light flash out wherever the just exchange their messages may I composed like them of eros and of dust beleaguered by the same negation and despair, show an affirming flame. So he doesn't want to be ironic. His light, his light must be true and just and um, eternal, unlike the light which is being flashed out by lying authority figures, I think is the idea, isn't it? Yeah, he wants to show an affirming flame. I mean, he's, he says, yet dotted everywhere ironic points of light flash out wherever the just exchange their messages. In other words, the just are the people who are against the war and against conflict and want peace and want harmony. Okay, yeah, sure. And he's composed like them, made up of the same uh, ingredients. Uh, He's beleaguered by the same things. He's confused, isn't he? What can he do? Mm. I want to show an affirming flame to whatever is just, because this can't be just. This can't be the right thing to do, he, he thinks. And I mean, you know, that is a very prop, con, you know, difficult 
one to resolve because basically post-1945, you couldn't say this. Yeah. I've just uh, looked at the this poem on Wikipedia because uh, I was interested in this thing about him turning away from the poem. And it would be worth reading just this from Wikipedia, which seems to be fairly definitive. Um, it says here, it, it was probably written in a place called the Dizzy Club, which was a gay bar in New York City. Um, anyway, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. It says, uh, even before printing the poem for the first time, Auden, Auden deleted two stanzas from, the la- stanzas from the latter section, one of them proclaiming his faith in an inevitable education of man away from war and division, blah, blah. Soon after writing the poem, Auden began to turn away from it, apparently because he found it flattering to himself and to his readers. When he reprinted the poem in the collected poetry of W.H. Auden, he omitted the famous stanza that ends, We must love one another or die. In 1957, he wrote to the critic Lawrence Lerner, quote, Between you and me, I loathe that poem. And he resolved to omit it from his further collections, and it did not appear in his collected shorter poems, 1927 to 1957. In the mid-1950s, Auden began to refuse permission to editors who were asked to reprint the poem in anthologies. In 1955, he allowed Oscar Williams to include it, blah, 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 but altered the most famous line to read, We must love one another and die. Okay. Later, he allowed the poem to be reprinted only once in a Penguin Books and Anthology poem of the poetry of the thirties, with a note saying about this and four other early poems. Mister W. H. Auden considers these five poems to be trash, which he is ashamed to have written. (laughs) So he was. I mean, he's obviously a massive drama queen, but. But that aside, he obviously really didn't like it and felt that he had committed a kind of an artistic sin in in writing it, which I don't really think he did. You no, know. I think he, he needed to have the courage of his convictions, didn't he? Because um, he sort of, I think he's he's been proved right on the whole. There's nothing particularly... It, it reminds me a bit of... Did you ever uh, happen to hear or read any of Harold Pinter's poetry um about about the iraq war oh no no i mean it's utterly dreadful uh because it completely lacks the self-awareness that auden obviously had probably too much of so auden's kind of so acutely self-critical that he you know worries about changing bits of the poem and then uh you know erasing it entirely because of how he how he feels now about his his attitude and the way he's expressed it whereas pinter doesn't have any of that um humility <laughs> it's just you know and i'm not i i i i admire pinter's uh plays but you know he he's a he's an artist who is absolutely sure of himself and in that somewhat cliched you know hampstead wringing your hands over the tossed rocket salad um, on dinner party kind of way was deeply critical of the Iraq war and wrote this deeply sort of unironic poetry about it but obviously it's, it, you know it's it's not that that won't live on in anything like the way that this poem clearly will clear, and has clearly has, and has. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose we might say in Pinter's case, presumably, I, I, I think he's 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 no longer with us, is he? How no. into he, he says he he possibly didn't have a chance to. Uh, <laughs> I don't think he would have changed his mind. I mean, I suppose it's, I suppose to understand Auden's reluctance to have this poem, uh, I suppose 
when, you, when you're talking about the Second World War, bear in mind he wasn't talking about the Second World, he, World War. He didn't know what was about to come. He didn't know what was going to be there with the horrors of the, holo- the horrors of the Holocaust, and you know, I mean, just the whole fucking mad show of it. And you know, D, well, that's basically D, D Day, you know, the rest of it. So I mean, he he's, he doesn't know, but but in a way, this poem is not a a, a, a sort of a, a political poem. It is a very intensely kind of... It's very self-absorbed. He's writing in this little self-absorbed bubble. And I suppose looking back on it and thinking, Jesus Christ, I was writing all about my own voice and the, what I could do. And the reality was that this war was about to just blow it all away. And it was just some irrelevant wank that I was writing in a gay bar in New York City, not seeing what was about to happen. You know, how did I not see all of that was just yeah. about to come? So, you know, instead I was wrapped up in fucking Nijinsky and Diaghilev and what was, you know, the the, 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 the foibles of the human heart, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I can understand that. That possibly looked back at it as a, it would be a slightly embarrassing um, piece of work, but I think in and of itself and on its own terms, understanding that you know, understanding it from the point of view of the first of September nineteen thirty nine, as opposed to you know August nineteen forty five, um, it's it's, yeah. it's a rather lovely and uh, and sort of delicate investigation into you know the artist's responsibility in times of crisis. Absolutely, I think it's in, the, in those yeah. terms. It's quite wonderful. And, it, and it, yeah, you shouldn't revise it, should you? This, this is exactly the kind of poem you shouldn't revise and change. Yeah, because, as, because this uh, is this is how, this is how he felt, and the fact that he's dated it so explicitly. Dan used the word journalistic earlier. It is it's reportage, isn't it? It's poetic reportage, and I think that's mm. right. And that's why, in a way, the choice of title just being the date and the yeah. and the specificity of the location, a dive on Fifty Second Street, and the, and the specificity of his feeling about, you know, the the September night and his feelings of being uncertain and afraid, you know, and all that stuff is is a sort of an important documentary work, which, as you say, to, re- to revise it and try and make it a sort of, you know, a, 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 a consistent or coherent with a, the historical overview is sort of madness. It's a fool's errand. And I can see why he didn't... He could never change it enough to satisfy that sense of embarrassment or failure you know mm. i think you're right i mean i think he wrote a really powerful poem and an important poem which you know he was the person to write um about how he felt at that time about what what was going on yeah and what, and what um, his responsibilities were or what his capabilities were you know and and if that and if and if ultimately if that's what his message is is I want to just be an affirming flame and my feeling is that you know that there is this lie of authority and that what we really should you know he's only he's essentially preaching the you know the Christian gospel more or less isn't it we must love one another or die mm. you know because that's there that that is the sort of you know the, the the crystallizing the dichotomy of the human experience is that we either engage in love or destruction you know. Or competition, I suppose, you know, love or competition. We must love one another or die. And what we appear to be on is the precipice of the second thing, you know, death. Um, and the poetic responsibility is to is to be of even if you're a voice in the wilderness, even if you're just some bloke at a bar in a gay bar in New York in 1939, you know, then you know you've still got that responsibility to try and be that affirming flame and 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 speak your heart. You know, I think it's great. Yeah, well, I'm going to say I'm glad we think you know good job for the internet because i've got a, a 27 pound 50 hardback edition of the collected ordinance it doesn't contain this poem <laughs> uh, which, um, which um is ironic in indeed 
Right, I'm going to ring my gong boys and then we have our final words. Cool, cool. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for uh, joining me on this, our exploration into uh, W.H. Auden, albeit superficial in some ways. We've looked at three of his poems. Uh, where are we now on Auden? One tiny footstep further into his 400 <laughs> or so published poems. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. Uh, yeah, nowhere, nowhere at all. Uh, but, but, I mean, obviously, as, as we... Sorry, Rob. No, carry on. on. No, no, carry on. I mean, yeah, as we've sort of always managed to do i think we've probably by accident we've i think we've covered some representative samples of the work haven't we we've 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 seen deep troubled Auden, and we've seen slightly more humorous wry playful Auden. from what i've read of his work before now which as we've established isn't you know i've not read it with any great um in any great depth but that's kind of what i thought about him um and that's sort of been confirmed here. There's a, but yeah, uh, it, it's been a, a, as always, really um, instructive couple of hours. It strikes me that it's he's a poet that, as you read more and you understood more about who he was, the poems would become more uh, coherent. You know, you'd be you'd be. I mean, that 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 first one we tackled. You know, the, just fundamentally the question of is he is he joking. You'd un- mm. you'd understand that as you read more around it, wouldn't you? Probably just reading the next two or three poems either side of it and getting a sense of what he was, you know, what his personality was. Um, I think maybe these are, are a little bit difficult to read in isolation with no with no knowledge at all. You know, I think that's that that's possibly true. I mean, at points in his work, he he almost sort of gets a little bit betjeman like, and mm. I think presumably Larkin was very influenced by him at times. I mean, what it, it makes me think that, I mean, he, this guy is just so erudite and, and committed to his poetic art. And, you know, I, I wonder how many people there are alive today. <clears throat> I mean that in all sincerity. I mean, I know he's presumably studied in universities. I don't know. Who could really, you know, who could really understand everything that he's going on about and sort of really, you know, dissociate the stuff which is a little bit limited perhaps more to the time period he was writing in and the stuff which has more more universal value mm. um, and i think that's a that's a, that's a tough a tough gig um to um to work out we said something similar about yates didn't we when we did yates uh, there's definitely a, yeah there's, and, and yates is a is a hero of of Auden's. you can kind of tell that i think he wrote a poem which was the uh uh a tribute to yates i think yeah, he did yeah, yeah. That's true, um, and and we did say the same about Yeats. Um, yeah, yeah. I think, and I, and, I, and I guess you're you're right that um, to really, you know, to go into it is is to to to, to be able to undertake a bit of study and, and so on. Um, um, just let me let me, let me I, just quickly read this down. Sorry, I know this is just somebody yeah. reading off Wikipedia, but I just just clicked onto Auden. Then in the US, starting in the late 1930s, the detached ironic tone of Auden's regular stanzas became highly influential. John Ashbery recalled that in the 1940s, Auden was the modern poet. And his formal influences were so pervasive in American poetry that the ecstatic style of the beat generation was a reaction against his influence. From the 1940s through the 1960s, many critics lamented that Auden's work had declined from its earlier promise, and Philip Larkin wrote, What's Become of Winston? in 1960. So he was considered, anyway, a hugely influential figure in both Britain and America. 
uh, at yeah. least through the forties. Yeah, and I can I can see why he's an interesting voice, yeah. and also um, a, a subject that we're steered away from this evening, uh, properly so, um, is uh, his technical yeah. mm. mastery and um, and ability to uh, to work in those different forms. He, he's he's one that I think we should circle back round to, and you know. Uh, you know, he's one that I think that would 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 happily welcome a second uh, a second podcast in the future. Yeah, agreed. Mm. So let's keep Auden on, up on bricks and return to him at some point <laughs> in the in, in the front garden with some carrier up, up bags. On bricks, and yeah. uh, uh, I feel like we've, we 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 could do we could do him a bit more justice, probably. Okay, gentlemen. Right, I'm going to ring my gong to say that this is the end of the podcast in a moment. So uh, we offer you a final. Uh, th- well, thank you both very much. Thank you to the listeners uh, for uh, bearing with us in this podcast. And um, we very much. Oh, boys, who are we going to do next time? I don't know. Yeah, it's true. We, we haven't we haven't uh, decided, have we? How about Wendy Cope? Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say. I, would, yeah, I listened to her um, Desert Island Discs the other day. I thought she's she's she sounds uh, interesting and um, funny and has an interesting story behind her uh, career as well, which I won't spoil here. But um, uh, yeah, an interesting woman by the sounds of it. Let's go with Wendy Cope. Then. I'm down with that. Okay. All right. Thanks, guys. Oh, sorry. Let me, Dan, before we stop, let me just say one last time, please do write in, do request a poem or poet, do send us anything that you uh, you would like to hear. Um, it's uh, poetrypodcats at gmail.com or you can get us at, at poetrypodcats on Twitter. And there will be some sort of supporting stuff on Twitter um, from this uh, from this podcast and uh, and this episode and other episodes to, to, to look back on. Okay, thanks very much indeed. Okay, thanks for listening.